Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. I'm Dr. Oliver Thompson. So on today's podcast, I spoke with Dr. Noor Abdel. Noor is a physiotherapist who specialises in the management of chronic musculoskeletal pain. She underwent her postgraduate education at the University of Brighton in the UK. And her PhD focused on the sociological perspectives of health and illness. And her qualitative research explored the impact of cultural, social and emotional experiences on women's manifestations of chronic low back pain and their behaviours towards it. She is currently the clinical manager at the Burroughs Rehabilitation Centre in Kuwait. And in this podcast, we spoke about Noor's clinical work as a biopsychosocially orientated physiotherapist in Kuwait and how she's integrating psychologically informed practice in her management of patients experiencing musculoskeletal pain. We also talked about her excellent PhD, which explored the illness identities amongst Kuwaiti women experiencing chronic low back pain and how we can relate this theory to our clinical practice. So this was a great podcast. It was almost a a catch up with an old friend in addition to a podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. And I bring you Dr. Noor Abdel. Noor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Oli. Thank you for having me. Um, So we we know each other from, we're both PhD students, right? At Brighton University. Right. And we, we both, essentially, we took the same approach to our research. We won't bore our kind of listeners with the intricacies of qualitative research and <laughs> constructivist grounded theory but but um we both went through that that process yes that's right and maybe just start by telling us a bit about you and what you do clinically and maybe academically so uh i'm noor abdal i'm a physiotherapist and i took an interest in chronic pain since i did my phd back in brighton um, so I'm currently working in, in a private practice and actually we're in the process of establishing a new clinic, which I'm very excited about, uh, or a rehab center to be more precise. And, uh, if I want to talk my, about my PhD and uh, as you said, this process that we went through and how it kind of shaped my practice and changed my practice really. So uh, I'm very interested in the biopsychosocial model, which I think most physios now or everybody yeah. that's, uh, you know, following evidence-based practice and, you know, trying to keep up to date is uh, touching on these days. Yeah. And, and uh, as yeah. I say, yeah, it, it seems like the kind of biopsychosocial model is this kind of buzzword now, isn't it, around musculoskeletal care or back pain? Yeah. And I'm not, I, think, I think it's easier said than done, isn't it? Yes. I mean, yeah, when you read about it, uh, so when, so once, when I started uh, looking into it, I think uh, us healthcare professionals, especially dealing, you know, with patient, uh, with patients, you know, uh, different sessions and you see them progress. And as you deal with them, you start realizing that there's, that there's more than the pathology or dysfunction or whatever it was. I think we all have that feeling where we feel a bit restricted in terms of our biomedical understanding of what's yeah. going on and how patients actually present in, in real life or in practice. So you kind of go to the to the literature and you read about the biopsychosocial approach. You know, it sounds really good theoretically. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not applicable practically, but then you go to clinical practice again 
and you, as you said, it's, you realize how challenging it is to actually implement, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, I know you're, you're right. I think, and I think there's, there's certain reasons why it's, why it's a challenge. I think partly is, is just the applicabilities. Can, you know, is it, is this patient bio? Are they social? Are they psycho? And then there's their expectations and patients seem to, to be kind of holding quite biomedical, biomechanical beliefs themselves. So when you present them with a kind of model of, of practice or approach, which is quite different to their expectations, it, it becomes that you know, there can be a bit of tension. I think I was interested in finding your your PhD looked at the kind of illness identities amongst Kuwaiti women experiencing persistent low back pain. That's right. And, and kind of in view of people having these uh, cognitive representations of back pain, these kind of frameworks, so that they think about back pain in certain ways, which are based on beliefs and kind of cultural background. That's what was kind of really interesting to me to, to speak to you. Yeah. So yeah, one of the things that really drew me to to my study was, as you say, when we're thinking of bio, psychosocial, even e- even when you're thinking about different cultures, you know, psych- psycho and social, and all those aspects de- mean different things to different people depending on where they are culturally. Yeah. You know what what kind of cultural constructs they they believe in, or they you know, or is the norm in where they're living. And so, uh, what I found in my practice in in my PhD, especially focusing on women, uh, I think I think it, it, cultural norms maybe vary, but they're very fluid mm. wherever you go. And so, basically, I the way the way I looked at those identities is I placed them on a continuum where women that were exposed to more uh, conservative norms uh, that would impact their social development. So I thought it was very interested to go back to their social identities as well, because we tend to focus on people's illness identities, be it their beliefs, uh, their coping strategies. But sometimes we need to dig a bit further and understand how their social situations may be associated. And so it was interesting to find that Women that were, again, women that were living in more conservative environments, that uh, affected their educational levels, uh, their socioeconomic status, um, their sense of agency or sense of control. Yeah. And as a result, they presented with more disabled identities in terms of their illness identities, more passive approaches to managing their pain. And... One area of my PhD which was really interesting and really struck me was the emotional accounts that, you know, one of those things, one of the beauties of semi-structured interviews is that, you know, you allow people to talk and you see what's important to them. And I think one thing that I I didn't focus on as a clinician, but something that I'm very, very aware of now is people's emotional accounts, you know, how, how they describe their pain uh, in different periods of their lives and yeah. also you know kind of the metaphors they use and how and i think it ties back to the literature on beliefs yeah because how people feel about their pain how people describe their pain really affects how they behave and how disabling that pain becomes and how much it controls their life and how much they feel you know lack of control yeah and so again that ties back to a lack of agency so so the more social the more their social identity lacked agency the more they felt that they lacked control over their pain, which was something very, and vice versa, obviously. So women that were more accustomed to liberal norms were more educated. They had, you know, uh, more income. They were more independent. They had more agency over their lives and uh, they showed more active approaches towards their pain. And even though I said I wasn't going to get bogged down in a a discussion about qualitative research, I think you're right. I think um, 
when I, you know, when I supervise students and they're kind of asking me about, you know, whether they should do a quantitative dissertation for their final year projects or a qualitative project, certainly the, the skills that you get as a qualitative researcher, particularly adopting a kind of constructivist where you really don't assume meaning to your participants. So, so during a, an interview, when, a, when the participant, participant says, you know, this is really hard for me, or, or, or even it might be something as everyday as a clinician saying, oh, I, I always, you know, look at someone's posture. Um, in everyday language, we're like, okay, great. That's, that's fine. But as a, as a kind of qualitative researcher, you're like, well, you know, what does that mean? You know, what, what do you mean by hard? Can you give me some examples? And, or, or you know, what do you mean by, you know, posture? What do you, what, you know, tell me what, what, how that plays out. And I think the same in clinical practice, we assume so much, don't we? We assume that we assume meaning rather uh, when patients begin to speak. And I think those qualitative um, techniques where you can really begin to dig down and drill down into what are some of those underlying experiences and beliefs which kind of which kind of drive the more surface level behavior uh, or emotions you know it's, it's, it's a really valuable kind of tool but that's me just my my qualitative bandwagon <laughs> <laughs> no I, I have to I have to agree with you completely I think I think just following that qualitative approach gave me a lot of skills and I think one of the very important skills that I incorporate daily in my clinical practice now is this reflexivity mm. where exactly we do assume and we do have, you know, uh, rigid ideas about things. And sometimes we have those, you know, uh, those interpretations of yeah. what back pain should look like or how much pain that person should be in because their MRI is showing so and so. And I think yeah, one of the th- one of the most valuable things I learned from qualitative research is always challenging my biases. Yeah. And I think you yeah. remember, you know, it was an intellectual journey because yeah. sometimes it was, you know, you're very fixated and it, you you felt lost at times because. But this is how I always understood this. Yeah. But actually, sometimes and it really it really helped me appreciate my patients more. I think it really helped me become more empathetic towards my patients. And I think when you look again, when you look back at the literature about therapeutic alliance mm. and building rapport with patients and how all of those things really affect, um, let's say, their, their experience with healthcare and how they can manage their, their pain. Um, it's, it's really helped me think outside the box and always challenge uh, my assumptions, which, again, as I said, it, it gives me an open mind yeah. when I'm when I'm kind of dealing with my patients and understanding their pain. So really, the, the the message there is more qualitative research. That's what's needed. Oh, yes. That would solve the world's problems. <laughs> but so when you were so when you were talking, so there were in in your PhD there were eleven participants, 10, 11, 12 participants. I think you spoke to maybe. You yes. Yeah. So yeah, when you spoke, I'm really interested to know how when you spoke to these these women. I know it was a, it was a while ago, but what about their accounts um, and their experience of of persistent kind of back pain? What kind of stuff came through? What, what can you kind of share with us that might be helpful to other clinicians out there, which are trying to kind of grapple with with patients with persistent pain and get a sense of kind of some of those cultural beliefs or illness identities. So uh, yeah. So what I found was, uh, so uh, my, my theory was that uh, uh, people, as I say, they lie, they lie on a continuum in terms of cultural and social understandings, which really shapes their social identities and their views of the world. Uh, as a result, that impacted their pain experiences. But also something very interesting that I found was people's identities were very fluid or women's identities were very fluid in that they were not this or that. Sometimes their identities overlapped and sometimes their identities actually changed uh, with time. Uh, and that was uh, impacted by changes in their social situations, for example. 
so I had this one woman uh, that was uh, going through a divorce and I was uh, fortunate enough to follow her up uh, throughout a year. Okay. And it was very interesting how when, you know, during that stressful period of her life, how it, ha- how it affected her emotional state. Uh, you know, the stress she was under, uh, custody of her children, you know, uh, trying to, to work out her financial situation because she was very dependent on, uh, on her spouse, things like that. Yeah. And then, and then talking to her a year later and, you know, seeing that she's settled, she's got her little apartment now, she's got her children and stuff and, and seeing how her account with pain shifted dramatically over the year, mm. you know, that was, that was an eye opener for me. So, uh, it, it, I, I, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it, 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 the social side of the, the BPS model is often forgotten, isn't it? There's so much emphasis yes. placed on kind of fear avoidance or kinesiophobia exactly. or beliefs or cognitions. And there's this whole, whole social side, which, which is, which is hard because it's really, I mean, it, it, it's often quite complex. Like you said, divorces, you know, problems in someone's house or being homeless or, you know, these, these, these issues are really external to to the clinician and of course cognitions are external but they're 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 somehow you can kind of access them to some extent through conversation but if someone's going through a really messy divorce or has a whole load of stuff external happening in their social world it becomes quite difficult for clinicians to to get a handle on yes and and i'm yeah and i'm gonna be yeah you have to be very very aware of because it's very hard, I think, for the biopsychosocial model. And I, and I struggled with that greatly when I started, when I came back from my PhD. Because I think my PhD gave me an awareness. It really gave me an awareness how complex uh, those illness mm. experiences are. But at the same time, as you say, as a professional, you really need to be aware uh, where to draw the line. Because, yeah, yeah I, I I mean, it was, it was good to know or good to be aware of those social... Uh, uh, you know, kind of relationships and, yeah. and situations that people go through. And I think if anything, uh, it really, it really uh, shows me how important it is to follow a multidisciplinary approach with those people, mm. because pain is complex. And so I think it's, it's a matter of understanding or being aware of all of those yeah. different factors and being aware when you can step in and when you need to actually refer mm. to, a, to another professional where you can work, uh, you know, close by with those professionals and provide, provide the most effective care for those uh, patients. You're, yeah, you're, you're quite right. And I think, you know, thinking out loud, it's when it comes, and, and I think the first thing you say is this whole bias, even, even fragmenting the bio psycho and social is completely artificial that if you're going through a divorce and which is kind of social if you like that's going to have you know implications on your your kind of uh, your levels of your mood your perception of pain all that kind of stuff there's this there's this whole kind of uh, interrelatedness but i think you know when when we talk about the the psycho it seems like there are parts of the kind of psychological side to patients let's say back pain which are kind of amenable to to your average clinician, you can have a conversation about beliefs. You can have a conversation about yes. people's kind of you know cognitive representations, and it doesn't necessarily take a kind of a psychology degree. And it is largely in in the scope of kind of modern musculoskeletal practice. But when it comes to you know c- counselling someone about their divorce or counselling someone about you know they're going to get evicted from their house, it, it's a, it really is a whole. It's, it seems like I said more, more, more complex. But I guess if, if you're aware of them, you can begin to kind of signpost to the clinician, to the to the patient where yes. to seek help or or kind of help you know, facilitate change that way. 
Oh yes, I I totally agree with you. And in terms of beliefs, I think uh, I I yeah, I think you know evidence and research has has really really helped in terms of as you say. Uh, things like fear avoid- avoidance, catastrophizing about pain, ruminating about pain, you know, kinesophobia, all of those things. Mm. I think as, as as clinicians, and as you say, as clinicians dealing with movement and as a clinician, clinicians with understanding of pain, I think, yeah, we are very equipped to help patients deal with uh, beliefs that are associated to their pain mm. and to their movement. Because I think as uh, you know, as healthcare professionals that, and you know, anybody in rehab that's really focusing on movement and function, I think we are most equipped to help people deal with those cognitions. And I think, yes, definitely educating the patient, talking to the patient, you know, reassuring the patient, uh, whether it was a conversation or whether it was during their rehab, during an execution of a movement. Yeah, that's definitely something that we as uh, rehab professionals, I want to say, hmm. Uh, can really step in and, and help them. But also being aware of all, of all of those other things, because I think a lot of uh, clinicians are guilty of kind of shifting blame, mm. you know, or, or uh, I don't want to say, but yeah, but there is an extent where a patient would be accused of malingering or overreacting or, you know. Yeah, or just uh, one of those patients that's going to, God, those difficult patients or those, those heart sink patient. patients where, you know, God, they've got all this, all this stuff going on in their lives. And you can understand sometimes where that comes from when it's just exactly. a lack of skills on the clinician's part. Um, right. And you just, you just kind of feel, and we've all been there, which I, where do I even start? You know, I just don't have the skill set to deal with this, you know, this, yep. th- these complex issues. Yes, exactly. Just being aware. Exactly. Yeah. So I, 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 so I did read your thesis. You had these great illness identities, which I, which I, do you remember what they were called? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ollie, you're asking all of those Viber questions. <laughs> I know I am. So I, I, we, we, yes, I, I, I had, I had the submitter identity, the camouflage identity and the combatter identity. That's right. And yes, I thought they, were, they, they just sounded great. So in terms of, you know, grounded theory, they talk about having these kind of categories with grab which kind of grab you and draw the reader in and have some explanatory power. So there's such nice identities. I've got to ask you about them because. Okay. So, so yeah, just what, what do they mean? So firstly, maybe just describe them generally. Yes. And then if there's any kind of relevance, you know, how, how should a clinician think about these and these okay. in relation to their patients? So the, okay. sim- the submitter one was first. I've got them in front of me. It's okay. Yes. Okay. So yeah, basically as, as the name uh, implies, so the submitter identity was uh, do, a very... Do you want to, sorry, do you want to, can you explain what, when we're talking about illness identities, is there a way that you can simply describe that? Yes. Yeah. Why don't we so start with that? I, so I want to, yeah. So basically uh, I, how I put the, those identities together. Uh, so I looked at peop- uh, women's beliefs about their pain, how they felt about their pain and how they behaved towards their pain. Okay. So, so identities were very centered on, as I say, people's beliefs, their emotions and their behaviors. That's how I shaped Okay. So taken together as a, as a package. Exactly. That's, that's an identity. Exactly. And so as, uh, with the submitter identity, so it was a more passive identity. As I said, uh, identities were very fluid. Mm. So I did kind of categorize women in different identities, but it was very important in my thesis to show that people, a woman transitioned or there was so overlap, I guess, between you yeah, might have been a bit of submitter, a bit of camouflage or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And so the submitter identity in general was very, as I say, passive. And I did find that the, the women's accounts, when, when they portrayed the identity, uh, the metaphors they used, the language they used to, to, um, to describe their pain, 
you know, things like uh, I feel electric shocks in my body. I feel like it's burning, you mm-hmm. know, I, uh, uh, it affected their sleep and things like that. So I found, yeah, that, that their, their pain experiences or how they, they described their pain, it sounded like they were going through, you know, periods of high, high exacerbation. Mm-hmm. They had excruciating pain and it was very limiting, very disabling. So I couldn't walk or I couldn't climb the stairs or, you know, I had to move out of my room because it was on the first floor. Uh, I couldn't carry my children. So again, there was a very social dimension as well and how they felt towards that, you know, not being able to care for for their children, not being able to carry out their social uh, responsibilities due to this pain. And they just felt out of control. So I I, I found that uh, with the submitter identity, the coping strategy was quite passive. Um, They relied a lot on medication. And a lot of those women would, you know, they'd use one medication after the next with not, no significant improvement or no long-term improvement. Yeah. And just in general, yeah, feeling a lack of control, like it's out of my hand. There's not much I can do. And did you get a sense of, from their point of view, the role of the clinicians, the therapists that they'd seen over, over the years and what they were looking yes. for from, from those people? Yeah. So again, uh, what I found, yeah, I did, I, I did look at their accounts about their healthcare experiences. And again, wh- what I found resonated a lot w- with the literature is when, when patients felt heard, when they felt like the clinician was listening, uh, when they felt a bit of empathy from the clinician, you know, when they felt that the, the, the clinician actually, you know, acknowledges that they are in pain. Yeah. They had a much better uh, experience with healthcare than when some clinicians were a bit dismissive or a bit prescriptive in terms of this is what you need to do. Patients really appreciate or or my participants really appreciated when it was explained to them, you know, why they were in pain or what the clinician thought was going on rather mm. than being told what to do but not really understanding what they were going through. Yeah. I also found that there was a a there was a variation between how women construed their pain experiences and how some clinicians uh, kind of forced uh, those illness experiences into yeah. a biomedical understanding, you mm. know? And uh, it was really confusing for them because sometimes a clinician asks a question expecting uh, an answer, like, how did that pain start? And I find a lot, even in clinical practice now, and that was, you know, patients don't know sometimes, and that's okay. You know, it's okay for them not to know because it's not always associated to an injury or a pathology or an, or an accident or whatever. Sometimes they actually develop a pain. They can't pinpoint the cause and, and increases gradually. And sometimes it's in remission. And sometimes they, you know, they, they go through a, a period of exacerbation of pain. Mm. So, yeah, I did find that. Uh, so, yeah, their, their experiences varied, really. Yeah, you can, you can imagine you know, a, a patient or one of your participants giving this really kind of rich account of the impact of their, their pain on their social life. And the clinician says, oh, yes, that's just because your pelvis is slightly asymmetrical <laughs> or, or gives a very simple biomechan- you know, biomedical answer, exactly. which just doesn't encapsulate the, the that patient's lived experience. And you can imagine... It might be seductive for the patient to think, oh, that's that explains it. But also, you think it would be kind of lacking, where you you, you wouldn't it wouldn't really kind of validate um, in its entirety the, the, that that patient's experience. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you, I think those things are important because. Uh, so actually, my second identity, the camouflage identity, was very it was a very interesting identity, and in, and in, in, you know, I found it very interesting in that uh, woman that felt uh, valued. 
So a woman that felt valued and appreciated and loved and cared for in in the context of, of their families, let's say. Yeah. Uh, they kind of masked their pain to some extent, uh, so that it wouldn't interfere with their with their social responsibilities. So if they had an appreciative spouse or a spouse that really cared about them or really appreciated them, they would sometimes kind of um, prioritize the needs of that spouse or that child mm. rather than uh, taking care of their pain. So they did it. They did that with acceptance. So it was very interesting that the with the submitter identity, they felt forced to kind of prioritize others' needs over their own because they didn't feel that appreciation. They didn't feel that value. Yeah. So while both women were behaving the same, let's say, it really it, there was a very different perspective in that. And with the camouflage identity, they were actually accepting this approach, but with the submitter identity, they didn't uh, accept this approach. And and is the camouflage so the submitter I kind of get a sense that they're just like this is just the worst thing in the world you know it's yes. really kind of affecting me I, and like you said they give all these kind of really f- kind of floral florid floral detailed um, descriptions of, of their experience and electric shocks and all those kind of things which is kind of mm-hmm. kind of consistent isn't it with with kind of more you know um, central pain or persistent pain exactly. um, whereas the the camouflage they're much more like this is horrible but I'm just gonna Bite, you know, grip my teeth. Everything's fine. I've got family to look after. Is that right? They can just press on. Exactly. Yes. And I think I I, I see this kind of identity in practice all the time. Mm. And I think with those identities, you need to be aware that it doesn't make sense to just say, "Listen, you're just overexerting yourself, and that's why you're in pain." You need to understand that those those roles that she's carrying out mean something to her. You mm. know, this this kind of reciprocity that she's getting from those relationships is important to her and i th- i think when you understand that you follow a more let's say an approach or you 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 give this person a, a program that's actually gonna make sense to her life so when you when you suggest it's fine you can do all of those things but you give her a way of how to pace those activities yeah in a way that's you know she feels that she's carrying out what she needs to carry out, but you make sure that you, she does it in a manner that she's not overexerting herself rather than just saying you're in pain because you just don't want to relax and you don't want to prioritize your health over. Do you, do you see yeah, what I'm trying yeah. to say? So it's very important to not let your, not, not let a clinician's preconceived judgments affect how they would, because as you say, Ali, you talked about this a lot. Language is very important. Mm. So sometimes we might be saying the same thing but if you're aware, just a little bit aware of the social, those social conditions and what they mean to this patient and why she behaves this way, yeah. then actually your advice will make more sense if you're more, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. At least they're trying to get a sense of the kind of framework by which they're going to interpret your your words, and then you can begin exactly. to either change your words and think actually I'm going to be, I'm just going to phrase things slightly differently, or I'm going to just you know, be much more nuanced in in my my language. But it's um. Mm-hmm. They were camouflages because they would just put this kind of mask on. Yeah, so they would mask their pain. They would mask what they were going through. So they didn't want to show their family members that they were in pain mm. because they felt that carrying out those social roles gave them validation, gave them care, gave them love, or that's how they perceived it. And so they wanted to prioritize that over managing their mm. pain. Fascinating. And then the last, the last one was combatter, which sounds... Yes. It sounds similar to the camouflage. It's less kind of passive, but, but, you know, describe it for us. 
So yeah, so the combatter at the other end of the spectrum was a more, so they were more in control of their pain. They followed a more assertive role, even with healthcare. Mm. So it was very interesting that with this identity, they actually demanded things when, so I had a, I, I, uh, I had a, one of my uh, participants who the doctor said, I'm just going to give you an injection and you're not going to feel the pain because this is so strong. And she demanded an ultrasound. She felt there was something in her back that needed to be checked. And then they actually found a benign tumor in there, which they oh, had wow. to remove. Mm. So uh, those, yeah, th so those patients, as I say, they were more assertive. They demanded what they want from healthcare and they were more in control. So there was a lot of, you know, I know that exercise is good for me. Therefore, I, you know, I undertake an exercise program and it helps me with my back or I swim and I feel happy when I'm swimming. And then when I'm swimming, that really helped me with my back. And there was a lot of the pain was there, but it, it won't stop me from what I aspire okay. to achieve. Yeah. So, so they, they held kind of more, more helpful kind of beliefs and, and thoughts around their, their back pain, or they, they were able to they had kind of high levels of self-efficacy. They could kind of continue despite the pain. Exactly. So exactly. Higher levels of self-efficacy, higher levels of internal locus of control, you know, uh, and that sort of thing. So that, yeah. And again, their accounts with back pain were, you know, they, they varied, uh, significantly mm. from people that were showing the submitter identity and they, it's there, it's annoying, but I don't let it affect my life. And yeah. then the family and then, and then social support was really important because people with, or women with this identity had a huge amount of social support, you know, from family members, helping them push through, motivating them and things like that. So that's again the the social aspect and it's it's importance and how people actually perceive their pain and behave towards it i kind of imagine that either the camouflage or the combatter identity that they're the, they're the, the patient that comes into your clinic and they're totally tensing and they're like no no i'm fine that no, the pain's okay I, I can take it i've got a really high pain threshold and they're just yeah. bracing and tensing you get them to move and they're just no no it's fine no, and <laughs> and they're kind of it's this um I guess, strategy to, to, to mask or to camouflage the pain or to avoid pain, whatever it is. But it's, it's, um, yeah, it, it, I'm just trying to imagine what these, what these kind of patients might, might look like in, in clinic. So the combatter identity reminds me of my CrossFitters. Okay. So, <laughs> so, you know, they go to the They're gym. They're still flipping, they... flipping tires with a broken leg. Exactly. And, you know, they come in with a back pain and then we, you know, we sit down, we take the history, we see what's going on. And then I say, listen, this is, you've done so-and-so. And so this is how you, you need, you need to recover. You need days of recovery. You need to watch your nutrition. You need, you know, you mm. need to watch your sleep hygiene and what's, you know, and then they go back and then they do the exact same thing. And then they come back again. And then third time around, it's just, you know, they reach a stage where it's just excruciating and that's when they pay attention. Yeah. But, but otherwise, yeah. So that's, that's what the identity reminds me of. You know, they want to be in control. They want to, it's all good. I think it's, it's, it's good to have this high self-efficacy, Yeah. but it's also important to understand that pain, pain is telling you something, you know, pains that, that this alarm system that's actually telling you something. So it's not always a smart idea to ignore it because if you ignore it, it's just going to, sometimes it's just going to get worse. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in your clinical practice in, in Kuwait, what's, uh, perhaps you could give us an insight into, into that and, um, maybe how some of this stuff plays out in your, in, in your own practice and what are some of your experiences, particularly in relation to the, maybe the beliefs that, that, that patients hold and, and how that whole biopsychosocial kind of package or approach is, is kind of transitioning. Cause in the West, I think, as we were saying, it's, 
it's reasonably well established now in the West. You know what, Oli? I think I think with the with the BPS model or with any any new approach that you sort of learn about and try to implement, I'm I think I think this maybe my journey will really help uh, physiotherapists that are actually trying to implement this. So I think the more the more you implement and the more you believe in it and the more you know you, the more you're confident with with your understanding of the P- BPS model, yeah, the easier it is to convey it to your to your patient. Yeah. So when I, as I said, when I came back, I had all this theory and I wasn't sure how to implement it into practice. So I struggled. And then there was just too much information with this social and psychological and biological. And how do you kind of, what do you do with it? Or yeah. where can you, you know what I mean? Uh, now I find, uh, you know, I've got, I've got my, you know, just, just reading the literature and, you know, training yourself in the area. So I've got my questions kind of, so when I sit with the patient, I understand that their story is very important. But at the same time, I'm looking for specific things that I think that I can manage as a physiotherapist. Yeah. So I always ask, so I always ask an open-ended question. Tell me about your pain. I think it's very important to start off with an open-ended question because the patient can say a lot. Yeah. And then we talk about behaviors because I find with a lot of my patients with chronic pain, it's more about uh, acquiring maladaptive illness behaviors rather than mm. the dysfunction itself. So these so th- these would be either relying on passive interventions or kind of avoiding taking this, they taking themselves out of um, situation which might perceive to be threatening or or harmful. So yeah, yeah, that and also uh, if I'm going to talk about Kuwait, we have a very uh, big percentage of the population who's very sedentary. Mm-hmm. So I found that I find that people that are in pain, especially if they're very sedentary, if their muscles are not being activated in the right way, and so, so forth, and their and their and their fear and their beliefs about pain lead them to acquire maladaptive behaviors when they're kind of standing up from the chair because they believe that if they stand in a specific way, then they're protecting their back. Yeah. Uh, when they're lifting objects, when they're walking, when they're climbing the stair, and so those maladaptive behaviors become so normal to the patient. Yeah. And that's one aspect. And then, as I said, I consider sp- sleep uh, because I know that sleep hygiene is very important. Uh, we, I, I ask about nutrition. I don't try to deal with it, but I ask about it. I explain to patients how important it is. So I think clinically, when you're implementing the biopsychosocial model, you just need to understand that all of those factors may play a role. And if you hear from those patients' accounts that, you know, they're not sleeping. You'll need to understand if they're not sleeping because of their pain or if there's something else that's kind of worrying them. And just point, painting this picture to the patient that, you know, so it could be your maladaptive behaviors, your lack of sleep, you know, your sedentary lifestyle, and all of those factors could be playing a role. And then we start to try, I start to build their uh, treatment program from there. And how do you find that they respond to that? So even my experience here in the UK, um, the minute I, I kind of play down some of the physical interventions whether it's manual therapy or, or some of the other stuff, patients often look at you with this confused look like, Hmm, so you're not gonna, you know, you're not going to manipulate my back or you're not going to do some manual therapy. And then it's, it becomes, you know, it's about some of their expectations that, that they, then they're, they're still in a biomedical model, if you like, and they're looking mm-hmm. for you to kind of provide some tissue diagnosis, provide some specific treatment to kind of fix that. 
that um, problematic tissue. And then the minute you start to say, well, actually, we're going to spend a bit of time talking about your pain or um, we're going to do less kind of manual therapy. I think it's more important to, you know, uh, to, to take this approach. How do you, that's, that over here, it's, for me, it's, it can be a challenge. But how's it, how's your, what's your experience like in Kuwait? It's definitely, if we're talking about the biopsychosocial model and how it's been implemented in Kuwait, I think a lot of clinicians are more and more aware uh, a lot of clinicians are, are updating themselves. Uh, I have to say, yes, still we've got uh, a lot of uh, clinics and rehab centers and maybe some hospitals that do follow a very biomedical and I want to say conventional uh, mode of yeah. care. And, and that, that can be a lot of things, you know, when you've, especially with time, you know, amount of patients versus amount of physios. You know, there, there, there are a lot of limitations to implementing the biopsychosocial model. But in terms of my, my personal practice, uh, in the beginning, uh, I talked a lot because you read the literature and you say, they say that I think the first two sessions that you just sit the patient and you do some pain neuroscience education. And to be, to be very, uh, you know, to be honest with you, that didn't really work with me. Mm. So what I do is I educate while treating. Yeah. And I find that's much more effective. So when I'm carrying out a manual intervention, I make sure that I explain to the patient that I'm carrying this out because whatever it is. And I make sure I explain to the patient that this is a short-term uh, pain relief. Uh, it's not something that's going to fix your problem. It's, gonna, it's something that's going to help us calm down uh, those nerves so that we can get on with the rehab that's actually going to help us uh, with fixing the problem. I do do a lot of my education through movement. I found that it's a very effective approach. So when a person especially is fearing movement, and I know that that's one of the main problems that, that that's affecting their behavior, they're tense. And as a result, their movement is, is, impa is impaired as a result. So I would actually let them carry out the exercise, explain the importance of the exercise. And then as they start relaxing, because you know you're de-threatening them. That's what yeah. that's what pain neuroscience is at the end of the day, isn't it? It's de-threatening yeah. your patient, and then they realize how that pain actually starts dropping with that movement. You kind of start building trust, and yeah. and that's how I tend to do it. And I find it's very effective with my patients. Yeah, and I think I think your your experience kind of relates to the recent trials on you know pain ed or just you know, explaining someone's pain to them has kind of lim limited effectiveness that that just telling someone about neuroscience or, or why they're feeling what they're feeling doesn't seem to land with with many patients and so even though this podcast is called words matter it could also be called experience matters so i think there's something about people you know just telling people you know they're fine or not to worry or you know motion is lotion hurt does evil harm all those things is is fine but i think if you know in addition to that you've got to get people to experience that you know, those either those contradictions, so either they're expecting you know the, something to hurt and it doesn't hurt, um, but begin to experience those you know that those less threatening movements or that absence of pain or whatever it might be to begin to enhance their confidence and um, progress. Yeah, because because at the end of the day, you need to speak the patient's language. So the patient's coming in with a back pain and they're concerned because they either can't sit or they can't walk or they can't climb the stairs or you know, they can't bend their back. Yeah. So to, to be honest, sitting them down and explaining to them, listen, it's in your brain. It's not in your back. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is. But 
I find that when you talk them through the, you know, when you talk them through it while you're actually in the rehab process and you say, actually, you could do you, you the first time was painful, but when you did it again, it got easier. And then when we did it five or six times, it's pain free because your brain now knows that this is a safe movement. So yeah. when they, when your brain didn't know, it was kind of sensitizing those nerves there and therefore you felt pain. But when your brain is actually realizing, okay, this is safe, this is not yeah. going to hurt your back. And it makes much more sense to them because they're coming to you to reduce the pain. So if you talk them through it while you're helping them reduce their pain, then they buy it. Yeah, it is a much more, much more kind of profound learning experience for them, isn't it? Rather than just being exactly. you know, a bit like, you know, a bit like teaching, you know, just, you know, just in a passive kind of lecture um, is quite different to something which is much more gauging and uses different kind of modes of, of uh, media, for example, or stimuli. It's, it's, it's much more powerful. Exactly. Noor, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great talking to you. Yes, thank you so much, Ali, for having me. I've re- I really enjoyed this. It's been great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.